Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles back to Malachi chapter 1 and follow along with me as I read our text uh, for this evening's sermon. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of Yahweh is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Familiarity breeds contempt. I imagine that Many of you can think back to a time, maybe when you were first saved, when Christianity was thrilling to you. I mean, you had come to grips with the reality and the depth of your own sin before a holy God. You had come to see and enjoy the unspeakable majesty of God's holiness. 
You knew that because the sinless Son of God had absorbed in himself the full exercise of the wrath of God against your sin, that this holy God had graciously forgiven you of your sin and granted you eternal life. And fellowship with Jesus in those early days was just so sweet. It was like he was your best friend in the world and didn't leave your side all day. You couldn't wait to carve out some time in your schedule to be alone with him, to read and meditate on his word in scripture, to pour out your heart to him in prayer. Coming to church to worship God and fellowship with other believers was the highlight of your week. You couldn't wait to set aside that time in your week where you gathered together with the people of God and offer him a sacrifice of worship as the gathered assembly. <clears throat> and evangelism seems like you told everybody you came into contact with of this wonderful message, this news of grace and salvation that, that you had just experienced in your life. And indeed, there are few things more encouraging than a young believer's guided zeal for Christ. But after some time passes, and you know how this goes, Bible reading and prayer and church attendance and evangelism, it all kind of becomes familiar. What was once such a joy, such a privilege, such a thrill in our own hearts, starts to become burdensome, even wearisome. The Bible starts to look thicker and thicker, and our Bible reading plans always seem to have us in the consecration laws in Leviticus or in the genealogies of First Chronicles. Prayer is reduced to quick requests when something goes wrong, and praying for 10 minutes seems like an hour. Attending church just gets to be another appointment on your calendar that forces you to wake up early on Sunday. And if we're not careful, even listening to God's word preached can become little more than an academic exercise. We stop experiencing these activities for what they are, glorious privileges for worship, and we just go through the motions. In so many ways, familiarity, even with these most wonderful, delightful responsibilities, can breed contempt. And a similar thing was happening with the priests of Israel in the day of the prophet Malachi. We mentioned it last Sunday evening that Malachi had undertaken his prophetic ministry somewhere between the mid to late 400s B.C., about 100 years after Judah's return from exile in Babylon. And about 80 years before that, just 20 years after the exile, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah spoke words of great promise and encouragement to God's regathered nation. Through Haggai, God commands Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And Ezra 3, 10 and 11 tells us when the foundation was laid, the, the everybody sang the, 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 pre, the praises and, and thanksgivings unto God. But those who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple wept at the building of Zerubbabel's temple because it paled in comparison to the splendor and the beauty 
of that glorious temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. But God promises through Haggai that all the nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem with their wealth. He says, I will fill this house with glory. And the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. In Zechariah 8, God promises there's going to be such peace in Jerusalem that men and women will grow old and that the streets of the city will be filled with children playing. And eventually, God says in Zechariah 8, 7, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. But like we said last time, by Malachi's day, it had been about 80 years since God had given those promises and Israel saw no such messianic renovation. And so they began to wonder where God was, when he was going to fulfill these magnificent promises. And and after years of waiting and hoping, both the people and the priests became disillusioned. Now, sure, they still went about their religious business. They still, they still celebrated the feasts and they offered the sacrifices. But the mundanity of the routine led them to become familiar and bored with the worship of God. Their hearts became hardened and the temple service became little more than going through the motions. In their case... Familiarity did breed contempt. And so God sends Malachi to speak into these issues, to rebuke Israel for their unfaithfulness. And among all the sins for which Malachi will rebuke Israel, he spends almost two whole chapters, from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9, indicting the priests for their worthless, corrupt worship practices. Now you say, Mike, what does that all have to do with me? I mean, priests and temples and altars and animal sacrifices. Uh, The sacrificial system of Israel has been fulfilled in Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice. and, And so we don't really deal with any of that anymore now in the new covenant. Well, wrong. Well, not all wrong. Some of that's true. But it's not that we don't deal with it. The New Testament takes the Old Testament imagery of sacrificial worship and describes the Christian's entire life as a sacrificial offering of worship to God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your bodies, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's the language of priestly temple ministry, spiritual service of worship. Christians offer sacrifice, not animal sacrifice, but the living and holy sacrifice of our entire lives. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. 
So our praise and our thanksgiving, our deeds of love and generosity to others, all of these things are described as sacrifices, as if we were priests ministering in the holy place. And in 1 Peter 2, 5, the the verse that Chris read to begin our service this evening says that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a temple for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so you see, friends, the Christian's entire life is priestly ministry. The way we live, the way we serve, the way we obey or disobey is like the offering of spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 tells us that Jesus' flesh was like the veil of the temple that separated Israel from God's presence in the holy place. And because we are united to Christ by faith, the text says we have confidence to enter the holy place By the blood of Jesus. And so you see, as a kingdom of priests, Christians live every day in the holy place. We live every day in the very presence of God himself. And though that is an amazing privilege, though that is a marvelous display of God's grace, it should also strike a holy fear into our hearts. People died for failing to properly revere God while ministering in this holy place. And we are in the holy place every day, before the face of God every day. Well, as we consider God's word to Israel through the prophet Malachi this evening, I want to highlight Three marks of their worthless worship. Three characteristics of unworthy worship. And my hope is that we would remember that we Christians are a holy priesthood. That we are a kingdom of priests of the new covenant. And that our entire lives are spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. And as we see these marks of worthless worship from the priests of Malachi's day... My hope is that we'll be able to detect the presence of worthless worship in our own lives, to put it to death by the power of the Spirit, and then worship God in spirit and in truth in a manner that He is worthy of. So that first mark of worthless worship is their self-righteous self-defense. Self-righteous self-defense. We see that immediately in verses 6 and 7. Yahweh says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Well, then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? That is not a good faith request for information. It is bitter contentiousness. It is hypersensitive self-righteousness. And it characterizes the people's attitude throughout the whole book. 
We saw last week, chapter 1, verse 2, right at the very beginning, God declares, I have loved you. And their immediate immediate response is, how have you loved us? Chapter 2, verse 13, God tells them he doesn't accept their offerings. And their response in verse 14 is, for what reason does the Lord not accept our offerings? Come on, what's wrong with them? 2.17, God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And they don't miss a beat. How have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 8, God says, you're robbing me. They say, how have we robbed you? Verse 13 in chapter 3, your words have been arrogant against me. They say, what have we spoken against you? Throughout this whole book, their default response to God's rebuke is not the response of true worshipers. The sacrifices of God are what? David tells us in Psalm 1, or 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But this is not humble, contrite submission. This is not the kind of self-examination and broken-hearted repentance that characterize those who know their own weakness who desperately want to be rid of sin in their own lives. No, this is the response of those who trust in themselves to be righteous. These are the kind of people who are shocked to learn that they could be offering worship to God that he's not pleased with. This is a telltale sign of self-righteousness. When a self-righteous person is criticized or has brought correction about their worship practices, they take personal offense because their worship is about them. What? What what do you mean that my hand flailing and dancing in the aisles is distracting to other worshipers? I mean, this is my way of worshiping God. Ugh, legalist, fundamentalist. Who does she think she is? Look, I like the light show and the smoke machines, all right? It makes me feel comfortable. The music from heretical worship bands really makes me feel close to God. Figure that one out. Why are you harshing my mellow? Who are you, the worship police? What do you mean I should wait to be dismissed before I get up to leave the worship center? I mean, I stayed for the whole sermon, don't you know? I've got places to be, okay? Back off. Don't clap. Worship is not a performance. Are you serious? See, worship for these folks isn't about God. It isn't about pleasing him. It's not about worshiping him according to his revealed word. No, my worship is about my feelings, my comfort, my preferences. This is the response of self-focused, self-centered, self-righteousness. A true worshiper hears a rebuke like this from God's spokesman, and he's genuinely concerned. Now, I'm not saying you have to be captive to the conscience of every legalist with a pet peeve. But 
even if you don't automatically accept the criticism, the true worshiper listens to the reproof of wisdom. Because he wants his worship to be pure. He wants his worship to be acceptable to God. And if there's any chance that it's not, he wants to hear about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for pointing that out to me. I bet that wasn't easy for you to say. Uh, I really do want to be careful that I worship God in a way that he's prescribed. And so I really appreciate your exhortation. I'm going to go to the Lord with that. That's the response of a humble worshiper. But when the self-righteous take personal offense, when they're rebuked, they reveal that their religious activity is more about themselves than anything else. And given the historical context of Malachi, I think that's exactly what's going on here. What do you mean we've despised your name? How have we defiled your altar? Listen, we keep bringing the sacrifices. We keep this temple thing going. You know, we're actually keeping our end of the bargain, God. The sacrifices are getting offered. Where are you? There's no, where's the restoration you promised? Where's the glory in the temple that you promised? And as blasphemous and unthinkable as that sounds to us here in a proper frame of heart and with the wickedness of such thoughts stripped down to their naked deformity, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that those kinds of thoughts can creep into our hearts. You know, I keep reading my Bible. I keep going to church. I keep going to Bible study. What is this spiritual growth and satisfying communion with Jesus thing going to kick in? These priests, they figured they were righteous. They were doing what God required of them. But the righteous worshiper doesn't arrogantly defend himself when God criticizes. The righteous worshiper, always aware of his own weakness, and proneness to wander, humbly and thankfully receives biblical correction, wherever it comes from, even if the delivery is bad, even if the person bringing it is making some wrong assumptions, even if they're not as gentle and as kind in the delivery as you might like. The wise man or woman wrings whatever he can or she can out of any correction that's biblical when it's brought to them. Now, let me ask you, how do you do in that area? If someone comes to you, confronts you about your worship practices, which is to say any part of your life, because every part of your life is worship in the presence of God, in the holy place. When someone addresses your sin, what's your default reaction? Is it immediately to defend yourself, whether out loud or just in your heart? When other believers who love the Lord, who who love you, come to you and address something in your life for God's glory and for your benefit, what's your response? Is it anything like the priests? What? How is that sinful? One example I've continually emphasized is the importance of going to a Sunday morning fellowship group and then attending a midweek Bible study as an extension of that fellowship group. You know, this is a a large church. We are blessed to have all of you with us. But, you know, 
you can come to church, stare at the back of somebody's head for an hour and leave and nobody knows anything about you. Having a small group of 15 to 30 people that are aware of both your weaknesses so that they can serve you and your strengths so that you can serve others, that's an essential part of being members of the body of Christ. Having a qualified man or group of men caring for your souls as under-shepherds is the best way that the elders know how to faithfully shepherd a flock as large as ours is. What's your response to hearing an exhortation like that? Listen, I make it to church most of the time. Well, that's great, but nobody knows who you are. Nobody's involved in your life if you're not accountable to anybody. Listen, I read my Bible, all right? I I pray. I even give. If, If that's your attitude, if your response to correction is to list off all of your religious activity as a way of self righteously defending yourself, it might be that your acts of worship are more about you than about giving God what He's worthy of. And so that's a call to self examination. Well, second mark or characteristic of worthless worship is, number two, empty formalism. Unworthy worship is marked by self-righteous self-defense and empty formalism. Look at the end of verse 6. How have we despised your name? You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? And then he repeats the charge again in verse 13. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. Should I receive that from your hand? You see, the Levitical law was clear. Acceptable sacrifices to Yahweh were to be blemishless without defect. Leviticus twenty two nineteen says, For you to be accepted, it must be without defect, the sacrifice. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a freewill offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to Yahweh. And yet, that is exactly what they were doing. The priests, whose responsibility it was to protect the holiness of Yahweh's sanctuary. And here they were, offering the blind, the sick, and the lame. They offered God their worst rather than their best. They offered what would cost them the least. They had no category for sacrifice that was a sacrifice. Do you remember toward the end, I think it is, of 2 Samuel when David is saying he he wants this person's land. I even forget what it is now. But he says, the line that I remember is, what he says to them, the man says, no, please take it. You're the king. You just take what, I, what you need from me. And David says, no, no, I will not offer sacrifice. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 
And these people are saying, who cares if the animals have stuff wrong with them? They're, they're going to get burned right away anyway, right? And look, I mean, um, the sacrifices are being offered, aren't they? The ritual's being performed. See, the whole task was nothing but an external duty. It was just empty formalism. They were just going through the motions. If their hearts were in it, they would have gladly desired to give God the best of what they had to offer. But worshiping God according to the prescriptions of his own word was not their concern. What about us? We who are a holy priesthood, we who offer up spiritual sacrifices to God by our entire lives of worship. Well, if we take honest stock of our own lives, it's not long before we realize that we fail in similar ways to the priests of Malachi's day. We don't give God what he is worthy of. So often, we don't give him our best. The spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer take a back seat to the other things in our lives that seem more pressing, more urgent. We give God our leftovers, especially the leftovers of our time. We do our devotions in our spare time, if we can squeeze them in at all. We seem to have plenty of time for entertainment, for social media, which of course can be lawful recreational activities in their proper place but only when we've properly prioritized our personal worship time of prayer and scripture reading, of church attendance and involvement in fellowship. See, God calls for our first fruits, not for our leftovers. Well, you know, live stream, I mean, it's like I'm there. Look, live stream is a wonderful blessing for those days when you're sick and prefer not to share with others. And when you're away, or certainly if there are those of you who are out there listening now who are homebound, who can't come, but live stream isn't, Saturday was a late night, so let's just, let's just do worship from the bed this morning. Let's do worship from the couch. I mean, we're singing the songs, we're, we're listening to the sermon. Again, it's like we're there. We, come re- we become real practical really quick. I mean, the sacrifices are getting offered. So they're blind. They're going to be burned. Yahweh tells the priests in chapter 1, verse 8, not even their governor would accept such sacrifices as payment of taxes. And I think that applies to us in a big way. We offer to God what we would never dream of offering to our secular employers. Which of you would ever think of going into work a few hours late on Monday morning because you didn't get enough sleep the night before? You might not have a job soon after that, but how many times have you skipped the early service or church altogether because Saturday was a late night? Sunday morning starts Saturday night. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given. But Malachi says we wouldn't treat our jobs that way. We, we wouldn't treat our schoolwork that way. God help us, we can treat Jesus that way. And then even when we get to church, we're not always fully here. We, we let the routine of the order of service lull us into mindless ritual, as if just being physically present is enough. 
But true worship, true acceptable sacrifices of worship to God requires intentionality and focus. Our hearts need to be engaged. You know, we've sung some songs so many times that if we're not careful, our minds can begin to wander even as we're singing. Even as we're carrying a tune and, and vocalizing the proper words, we can be thinking about lunch or where we need to be after the service. On some days, we're so tired that we long for congregational prayer time just so that we can lean forward, put our heads down, and rest our eyes. I've been there. It's not just you. He knows. He knows what I'm thinking. No, it's, it's the sinfulness of our own hearts. But our worship in prayer and our worship in song should have all of our hearts and all of our minds engaged. We should be singing from our hearts as if Jesus were here himself and we're offering him the praise right to his face because we're before his face. When a pastor's leading us in congregational prayer, we should be closely following along, making his words our words as we call out to God in praise, in confession, in thanksgiving, and in supplication. Even in the special music and the the instrumental music, when the orchestra's playing the melody to I Sing the Mighty Power of God, it's not a concert where we get to sort of sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. No, that's an opportunity for us to worship. Even though we're not singing along, and even though it can seem a, we can seem a bit passive in that, those times are opportunities for us to consciously worship God with gifts better than our own. To worship God for giving such wonderful gifts and talents to fallen human beings, such that we can enjoy beautiful and pleasant music that reflects God's own nature. These musicians have been blessed beyond measure. They're using their talents for the greatest enterprise that one could engage in, the worship of Almighty God. We're going to do this in heaven forever. They're giving expression to the praise that ought to be in our hearts, but in a way that we can't do, just simply because God hasn't given us the gifts he's given them. I I can't sing like Phil Webb or Grace Chung or John Martin. I'll let you trust me for that. No demonstrations. But I can thank God, though. I can thank God for using my brothers and sisters to express the love for God that's in my own heart in a way that I could only dream of doing, in a way that I could only look forward to doing when sin is rid from my body. We can thank God for being the creator of beautiful music. We rejoice in the gifts that he gives to others. We can pray that he would, that very moment, receive that musical offering as an offering of worship from hearts that are satisfied and made glad by his grace. We can pray that he would be magnified by the reproduction of his own skill and his own wisdom in the image of his creatures. But the text says we bring the blind for the sacrifice. What's that mean? How does that text apply to us? Well, in in their day, it meant they brought blind animals. How could we apply that to us? Well, it would mean to worship God in ignorance, with the eyes of our spiritual understanding, as it were, shut and blinded to the revealed truth of God. It is to fail to bring the truth of the Scriptures to bear on our worship, so that we innovate 
rather than worship God as he's prescribed. We bring the blind when we bypass or disengage the mind in favor of emotionalism. When we worship, when worship becomes more about how we feel than about what God deserves and what he demands from us. How about the sick? Well, we bring the sick for sacrifice when we're cold or dull or lifeless in our worship. Our minds may be engaged, but we don't make heart work of it. We go through the motions. We, we stand when we're supposed to stand. We, we sit when we're supposed to sit. We quiet down when we're led in prayer, when we're listening to a sermon. We, we sing when we're supposed to sing, all the while leaving the heart unengaged. Jesus indicts those who worship him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Matthew 15, 8 and 9, in vain do they worship me. And we bring the lame for sacrifice when we allow our minds and our hearts to be distracted with empty thoughts, letting our minds wander as we think about the schedule for next week or what needs to be done around the house or whatever. Our entire lives are sacrifices of worship, but the pinnacle of our worship comes on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening in the gathered assembly where we gather as the people of God together with our brothers and sisters, where the Lord is enthroned on the praises of his people. And when that happens, what sacrifices do you bring to the temple? We are not to endure a sermon We are to make our mind, make sure our minds are fully engaged so that we perceive the truth being proclaimed from God's word and are properly affected by it. So that as the truth of God penetrates our minds and inflames our hearts, our hearts then overflow in genuine adoration and pure worship of God that issues in a holy life once we leave this place for the week. So you see, if we're not careful, All of our Bible reading, all of our church attendance, all of our fellowship activities can become little more than going through the motions. Little more than the empty formalism of the priests of Malachi's day. Little more than taking God's name in vain. And what's God's response to this empty formalism? Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates. That you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. God says, keep your offering. If you can't give me what's in your heart, I don't want what's in your hand. God gets so fed up with their shallow and casual approach to worship. He'd rather the temple be closed down. No worship is better than blasphemous worship. If you would, turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11. God says, what are your, to Israel, he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Just imagine imagine hearing this. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. 
And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. And in the same way, he told the people of Isaiah's day that he took no pleasure in their sacrifices. He looks at the priests in Malachi 1.10. He says, I have no pleasure in you. In you. I mean, what a statement. Could you imagine hearing those words from Almighty God? The judge of all the world. The God who sees to the depths of your heart. The God who is sure to know you accurately as you truly are. Looking at you with the piercing eye of omniscience. And saying, I take no pleasure in you. I mean, that is an undoing thought. I mean, no, for me, I can't imagine that. What I want more than anything in my life is to delight the heart of my Savior and my God. I want the one that I love more than anything, more than life itself, to look upon me and to see not me, but to see the fingerprints of his own grace and be pleased with the work of his hands. You know what he says? Malachi 2.3. I mean, what an image. He says, in the same discourse to the priests... Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. So as you like to keep all the good animals for yourselves and make a profit, you like to get fat off of the, the people of God, do you? Well, you know, and you, and you like to have your feasts and you have your, your, your parties. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the trash from your, fi- your, your, from your feasts and I'm going to rub your faces in it. That's the holy God of the universe. With what kind of indignation could move a heart so holy and so patient to that kind of ire, that kind of displeasure? Certainly a kind that ought to make us sit up and take notice. Certainly a kind that ought to get us on our knees examining our hearts and seeking for sure and perfect pardon from our substitute. So I need to search my heart. I need to confess. I need to repent. I need to seek his grace so that by his grace, I might be able to offer him what he's worthy of. And he's worth more than our leftovers. He doesn't accept the lame and the blind and the sick and the half-hearted and the begrudging. So determine to put to death by the power of the Spirit of God any empty formalism that might be lingering in your life. Spend time in prayer this week in your devotional time, in your personal worship. Ask God to reveal where this might exist in your life, if anywhere. Praise God if it doesn't. But if it does... Ask God to expose it and then go to work. Put put it to death by the power of the Spirit of God through the promises of the gospel. Commit yourself by His grace to worshiping Him and serving Him in spirit and in truth. Well, not only is unworthy worship marked by self-righteous self-defense and empty formalism, the third characteristic of worthless worship is Contempt for the duty. Contempt for the duty. Look at verse 12. 
he repeats what he mentioned already in verse 7, then he adds to it. And he says, you are profaning it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it. And that term, disdainfully sniff, as the NAS puts it, the ESV renders it, snort. It it translates the Hebrew word nafach. And it means to sniff or snort at with contempt. It's like having your arm twisted to, to, into doing something that you can't bear to do and, and voicing your disgust. It's like a, a child who whines, all right, fine. Insolent, complaining, bitter contempt. But don't we sound like that a little bit more than we'd like to admit? If not out loud, maybe just in our hearts. My, how tiresome the work of the Lord is. Getting to church before 9 a.m. after a long week can be tiresome. Going to Sunday school or fellowship group or Bible studies takes away from the rest we think we need after the busyness and the stress of the work week. How many times have you skipped personal worship time so you could sleep a little bit longer? And think about evangelism. I mean, I'm not just saying this because I'm the outreach pastor, but I don't know that there's a greater satisfaction and joy than proclaiming the gospel to someone who stands in need of eternal life. And yet how easy it is to be embarrassed, to be hesitant, to be fearful in that joyful duty. In all these things, church, fellowship, prayer, Bible reading, evangelism, these are such wonderful privileges we enjoy, and yet there are days that we say to ourselves, my, how tiresome it is. And we disdainfully sniff at them. Okay, all right. When we react that way, ask yourself, what am I communicating about a life of following Jesus according to how he's appointed? What am I saying to the people who would observe my behavior? You know what you're saying? You're saying that the worship of Jesus, the following of Jesus is contemptible. We say with our our actions what the priests said with theirs. The table of the Lord is to be despised. I don't think they were walking around saying that. I think that God is telling them that's what's in your heart communicated by your practices. But 1 John 5, 3 says what? God's commandments are not burdensome. As a kingdom of priests, people who minister to each other as the body of Christ and to minister to the, those in the unbelieving world, Christians must communicate by our attitude, by our speech, by our actions, that the worship and service of the Lord is delightful. That's how we stimulate one another on to love and good deeds. We say with David in Psalm 27, 4, that the one thing that I want is to behold the beauty of the Lord and to be about his ministry in his place. And then we live like that's true. That communicates that Jesus is glorious. That to be employed in his service is so satisfying that so far from contempt for our duty, we delight in our duty. He's just that enjoyable. He's just that lovely that I can suffer the loss of everything else in this life alongside the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3.8, and call it gain because I have him. 
My, how tiresome it is. No, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longed, even yearned for the courts of Yahweh. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. So these are the characteristics of worthless worship. Self-righteous, self-defense, empty formalism, contempt for our duty. And I hope that seeing them in Israel's bad example will help you in identifying them in your own lives. But once we find and recognize it, like I said before, we need to get rid of it. We need to put the deeds and the attitudes of unworthy worship to death. But in order to mortify it at its root and not just pick the fruit off the tree so that it grows back, but to lay the axe at the root of the tree, we need to understand what causes worthless worship. We've seen the characteristics of worthless worship, but what's its source? Where does it come from? Well, the source of worthless worship is a failure to properly esteem God's glory and to honor his name. A failure to properly esteem God's glory and honor his name. Look at, look at, at the heart of Yahweh's rejection of the priest's sacrifices is zeal for his own name. The end of verse 10 summarizes, I won't accept an offering from you. Then he says, verse 11, for, because from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. So you see, this is why. God's regard for his own name is why the sacrificial laws were as they were. Not because God is just some sort of arbitrary, capricious narcissist. And so you got to do it this way and dot this I and cross this T. No, because he's worthy of perfection. He's worthy of blemishlessness. God esteems his name and his glory above everything in the world. And therefore his people must esteem his name and his glory above everything in the world. He intends that his name will be magnified through all the earth and seen to be as glorious as it is. And for that very reason, you and I must worship him in purity. He demands that he be treated in a way that is commensurate with his own character. And he's been saying this to the priest the whole time. Look back at verse 6. He says, if I am a father, where is my honor? Kavod. It means glory, weight, gravity. He goes on to say that the priests despise his name. Despise there is bazai. It means to regard lightly. Just like Esau despised his birthright. He regarded it so lightly that he sold it to Jacob for a meal. He thought it a light thing, an insignificant thing. He didn't at all perceive the weight of it. And after what he's just said, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. I guarantee you that's in the author's mind. Esau despising his birthright. We're despising our birthright of pure worship. Rather than regarding God as weighty and worthy of reverential awe and pure worship, they treated him as if he were insignificant and common. 
They didn't think twice about speaking to him flippantly, about offering unworthy sacrifices, about complaining about the duty of his temple service, which was a privilege. Think about what the temple service was. This was where the wrath of God was satisfied against their sins. Every single day of atonement, looking forward to the final day of atonement, deriving its efficacy from Christ's cross. Nevertheless, here it is where God is satiated. He's satisfied against Israel's sins so that they might come and approach him and not be incinerated by holiness in the camp. Yahweh even identifies himself with his altar. Look at verse 11. He says, my name will be great among the nations, but you... My people, and and even more than that, my priests, you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. You profane my name by profaning my table. The way you feel about God, excuse me, the way you feel about the worship of God is the way that you feel about God. And so the way you treat the worship of God is the way that you treat God. At its heart, Worthless worship shows contempt for God's name. It is God himself that the priests despise. And the same will be true for us. People live out their theology. Your actions are shaped by what you really believe about God. You will always act in line with what you believe. And if a sober survey of your life tells you that you're engaging in unworthy worship, listen, The answer is not to just grit your teeth, try harder, pray longer, read earlier in the day, or attend church more often. No, the answer is to see God as great as he sees himself. It is to saturate the eyes of your heart with the vision of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. The great Puritan John Flavel understood that. We've got a Puritan conference coming up. Got to quote some Puritans. He puts it this way. He says, is Christ set down on the right hand of the majesty in heaven? Oh, with what awful reverence should we approach him in the duties of his worship? Away with light and low thoughts of Christ. Away with formal, irreverent, and careless frames in praying, hearing, receiving, yea, in conferring and speaking of Christ. Away with all deadness and drowsiness in duties, for he is a great king with whom you have to do. Oh, that you did but know what a glorious Lord you worship and serve, who makes the very place of his feet glorious wherever he comes. Flavel says, you may be free, but not rude in his presence. Though he be your father, brother, friend, yet the distance between him and you is infinite. So you see, if the source of worthless worship is regarding God's name too lightly, well, we need to cultivate our affections to love his name. To behold the beauty of his majesty. To treasure his glory. He's actually worthy of this from us. This is where the war against sin must be waged, Grace Church. At the level of spiritual sight. At the level of regard for God's name. 
I am not calling you to willpower religion. I am not calling you to mere duty. I am saying go to battle with your sin, fighting to get a more exalted view of God, to cultivate a deeper appreciation for the honor of his name, because that is the source of worthy worship. And of course, that glory is nowhere more wondrously displayed than in the cross of Jesus Christ. And friends, if there are any of you here today who have discerned that all of your religious activity has amounted to nothing more than worthless worship, I invite you to look to the one who has lived a life of worship that was perfectly consistent with the demands of the honor and the holiness of God's name. I invite you to look to the Lamb of God who offered his body, his body, as the once for all sufficient sacrifice and who poured out his blood to satisfy the Father's wrath against unworthy worshipers and who rose again triumphant over death, powerful to forgive the sins of all who turn from their sin and trust in him alone for righteousness before a holy God. Unbeliever, come to Christ this evening. Bow the knee tonight. You'll have to bow it before long. And that day won't be as pleasant as this. Trust in the perfect worshiper, Jesus Christ. And then to those of you who are in Christ, who recognize I am an imperfect worshiper. I'm not an unbeliever. I trust in Christ with with the, the meager mustard seed faith that I have. I'm not an unbeliever, but I've not measured up to the standard of God's word. If you're saying that, you are right. You haven't measured up, but dear Christian, Christ has measured up. Jesus has met that awful, unapproachable standard for you in your place. As your substitute, you could never bring a sacrifice to the holy God of the universe that is perfect, without defect, blameless for your justification. You need a substitutionary sacrifice to be offered in your place. And in the God-man, in Jesus of Nazareth, wonder of wonders, you have it. And I want you to draw strength from knowing That his perfect record of worshiping God in spirit and in truth with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. That record is credited to your account by virtue of your union with him by faith. So that where the father should look upon you and see the filthiness and the putrefaction of your unworthy worship. He looks upon you and sees the spotless robe of the perfect obedience of his beloved son in whom he is always well pleased. And so fight the battle for worthy worship, knowing that you have already been accepted for the sake of Christ, whose sacrifice of himself has pleased God once for all. And then fight to bring your practice in line with your position, with that exalted position that has been granted to you freely by grace. Find strength from grace to live a life of worthy worship. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we come into your presence only in the name of a mediator. We come in the name of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, who was alone 
the blemishless sacrifice. And I pray that you would receive worship from us that you are worthy of. I pray that our hearts could return something to you that measures the honor of your name, but only through Christ. We are aware of how filthy our sacrifices are, but we pray that you would sweeten the offering with the blood of your own beloved son so that when you see what we would give you from our hand, you receive it sanctified by him and that you would be pleased. Lord, we are weak and imperfect worshipers longing to delight the heart of God, our Savior, but who fail each and every day. And so I thank you for Christ on whose shoulders we stand, whose grace, as it were, flows through our spiritual veins. I pray, Lord, that we would not live beneath our privileges, but that we would offer what grace might offer you. We think of David who, at the, at the, the, the temple worship in First Chronicles 29 says, Lord, what is, has what is this people given to you? From your own hand, we have given you. Only what you have blessed us with could we return to you. And I pray that you would give from your hand, that you would give generously grace poured out in the hearts of your people that we might return to you what you're worthy of. Through Christ we pray, amen.